there, and welcome to Baseball by Design. I am SportsLogos.net minor league baseball correspondent Paul Caputo, broadcasting as always from the Helmet Sunday Hall of Fame in my basement in Fort Collins, Colorado. The theme of this week's episode, I think, has to be basically just like baseball is great, right? Like I'm going to talk with Tyler Mon of Minor League Baseball about his work that he does on the Minor League Baseball podcast and for MILB.com about Minor League Baseball branding and uniforms. And so we've got lots to talk about there. Josh Jackson, also with Minor League Baseball, is going to come on and talk about his Ghosts of the Miners series that he does on the Minor League Baseball podcast, all about like old-timey Minor League Baseball logos. So it's so much fun. So first of all, I don't think I've ever done an opener before, like a Tampa Bay Rays-style opener on the podcast, but I have Sophie Dill with me right now, and Sophie's going to be my very first Baseball by Design opener because Sophie accomplished this amazing thing on social media that was just so much fun, and I had to have her on to talk about it. Sophie and I have been following each other on, on Twitter for a little while. Sophie is an international social media phenomenon. After last month, she ordered a pizza for Seattle Mariner Jesse Winker to be delivered to the visiting clubhouse in Anaheim after Jesse Winker was one of uh, a handful of players ejected from the, the Mariners-Angels game in Anaheim because of a, uh, a pretty terrible brawl that happened in that game. Uh, Sophie, thank you for being here. Wow, first opener. Thank you the, for having me. You're my, my first ever Tampa Bay Rays-style opener. So I'm just going to <laughs> ask you the question, what in the world prompted you to order a pizza for Jesse Winker? And I'm just, I would just love for you to just take the story from here. So I'm just laying in my room watching the game, normal Sunday, Lots of tension between the Angels and the M's. Um, and then the brawl happens. Then I don't need to rehash that. We all know what happened. But um, I was watching Root Sports, and at the time they weren't very clear on on who all was being uh, ejected from the game. So I'm just imagining there, there were a bunch of people on Twitter who were uh, similarly as confused as I was. And uh, I saw a lot of tweets saying, I hope, I hope Link is having a beer back in the clubhouse. And I just thought, you know what? If anything, this will be a joke for my uh, 900-something followers. We've got a pretty tight-knit Mariners community. I'm going to order him a pizza. We should clarify, too, that you are a Mariners fan living in Arkansas. Yeah, yeah. I'm from, I'm from Seattle, and uh, uh, I've lived down here for 12 years. Okay, and this game was taking place in Anaheim. Yes. Okay. So I'm literally Googling the address for Angel Stadium, getting on DoorDash. I find uh, what appears to be a non-national chain because I don't want to send them Papa John's or anything like that. But I say, Mountain Mike's. Okay, perfect. That sounds great. And I, um, I, I send the thing. I send the small pepperoni just because it's going to be a, a cheap joke. I, I figure it has no chance of actually getting to them. And best case scenario, the DoorDash driver gets a free lunch and I get a, a nice joke. And um, I don't if you know DoorDash or not, you can you can track the whole thing from start to finish. And I see him. Uh, I see Samranjit, the driver, going to pick it up. And this whole time I'm thinking as soon as he sees that address, he's going to realize it's a, probably a prank and he's going to abort the thing. Yeah. He sends me a text. He says, hey, Sophie, just picked up the pizza and I'm on the way. And I said, okay, great. Well, I am 1,800 miles away. Uh, when you get to Angel Stadium, say it's for the Visitor's Clubhouse, say it's for Jesse Winker, just take it to any ticket gate. And uh, at that point, I thought, okay, this is done. This is over. And One of the funny the things you were doing was 
you were sharing screen grabs of your uh, oh, yeah. of your your conversations with the driver and <laughs> he became like this beloved character in this story on social media yeah by that time it had already started to blow up much further than my usual tw twitter reach and the longest five minutes of my life go by and he tweets back and says okay i'll let you know when i get there <laughs> and i thought wow he's actually taking it this might actually work so I follow him. Um, I'm watching him uh, take the several mile drive down to Angel Stadium, and I see him go to gate six. And at this point, I had been tagging the Mariners uh, social media team. There's no way that they, you know, hadn't seen it, um, getting hundreds of likes and retweets. And so I, I say, "Hey, Mariners! I don't know if you've been following along with us, but he is at gate six. The pizza is at gate six. And um, about 10 minutes later, he, he texts me and he says, uh, sorry, I'm so late. I had to find parking. Oh. Traffic is crazy. <laughs> you're, at a, you're at an MLD game on Sunday, bro. Of course the parking <laughs> is bad. And uh, so he delivers it and he's, he says, uh, says oh, thank, you, thank you so much. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait. At this point, there are so many people asking for his Venmo. Yeah. Twitter. I said, I've got a bunch of people here who want to tip you. Please, please. I, I don't know how much longer I can text you through DoorDash. And I just get a 10 digit number and it's his phone number. I text him. I said, Hey, is this Samarji? Samarji? He said, Is this Sophie? I said, Yes, it's <laughs> Sophie. Um, so I, uh, he sets up a Venmo. And uh, so as soon as I posted them on Twitter, I, before I did that, I asked, are you sure about this? I'm about to put your name out there. And he thought that it was like five or 10 people. But I put his Venmo out there and he said that his wife called him because her phone was blowing up. Oh my gosh. And uh, yeah, he, he had at least 500 tips by the end of that night. Wow. Not $500, 500 tips. No, I, I didn't want to ask. You know, yeah. he's, he's, He's had enough incentives to work. He has donated a thousand dollars to uh, St. Jude's Children's Hospital in Dallas. Amazing. And uh, the pizza place I use uh, matched that because they got a bunch of publicity as well. So this is the part of the story. I mean, I just love that part of the story. I mean, it's so heartwarming in this, you know, this DoorDash driver whose life changed unexpectedly, right? Like, and he was able to make a big donation like that. I mean, so that's amazing. And you created that out of thin air. And it's one of the, you know, it's the main reason I wanted to have this conversation with you. But the other part of this story that is just so much fun is the fact that Jesse Winker got the pizza and <laughs> commented on your, I think it was on your Instagram, not your Twitter, right? Yeah. And, and yeah. Yeah. So he got the pizza and said it was good. And then it led to, you know, I know that the Mariners have done sort of pizza related things since then. And so like, it's become this, you know, it's, it's taken on a life of its own, of course. Did you have any further interaction with Jesse Winker other than him saying, you know, I enjoyed the pizza? Yeah, uh, he's texted me a, a couple times since. And I told him that if I knew that it would actually get to him, and if I knew that there were three other ejected, well, our manager and two other players back there, I would have got him an extra large. <laughs> uh, but he's he's a super he's a he's a man of the people anyway. I and mean, that's yeah. why that's why we love him in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. He was a great acquisition for the team this year. I my my buddy yeah. Chris is a Mariners fan and I was telling him Jesse Winker, I was like, that's gonna be big for you. I didn't realize it was gonna be, you know, 
uh, pizza related, but um, <laughs> so then, and the Mariners, the Mariners, I think did a giveaway where there was like a, like a pizza coupon for, for something. If you did it with those, like a, a giveaway at the game pretty shortly after that. And so, so what was the, uh, you know, from a purely mercenary standpoint here, what was the jump in your Twitter follower count? Oh gosh. I had just under a thousand when it started. And now I have, uh, I hadn't looked in a bit, but I think it's over 4,500 now. <laughs> well it's it's different (laughs) yes i'm sure i'm sure it is yeah it's a uh, you 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 earned that by creating this really fun moment with this you know it was just it was just so positive everything about it was positive right and it was so much fun to to track online and then if i if i understand correctly you took a a trip the following weekend with your wife and were you recognized in st louis did did uh i'm one person yeah so okay i was wearing mariners blue and yellow and a sea of red. I don't have any cardinal stuff. And you know, I, I wore my Tacoma Rainiers hat the next day just to fit in. Yep, because um, it was red. I saw yeah. that on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Her name was Emily. Hi, Emily. Um, <laughs> if she's listening, she came up and uh, and said, "I told my husband to be looking out for you. I saw that you were here on Twitter." <laughs> and I feel bad that uh, my hair was frizzled from that humidity, and I, oh, yeah. I, uh, I feel bad for not getting a selfie with her. So. Uh, Emily, I'm sorry. <laughs> what a fun thing that you did, and it's just consistent with the theme that that baseball is great. And so I really appreciate you coming on and telling the story in the in the first person. Uh, you know, I've been enjoying following you on Twitter. I feel like I'm kind of in the know because I was following you before. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah so. I'm excited to be here. This is the one podcast that I was so thrilled that you asked me to be on. Oh, well, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you listening. And now that now that you're you're a celebrity on Twitter, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna be like, hey, I knew Sophie way back when. So <laughs> so <laughs> Sophie, I appreciate it. And congratulations. What a fun thing that you did. And, and uh, you know, the, the, the fact that it changed someone's life. And, you know, what, that's such an amazing part of this story. But then also just the, the pure gag of sending a pizza to a player who got ejected in a brawl is just is, is really hilarious to me. So so thanks for all that. And if you don't follow Sophie on Twitter, your username is just Sophie Ballgame. Okay, all one word. Yep. Okay, it. awesome. Everyone go follow Sophie Ballgame. And uh, who knows, maybe you'll get a pizza delivered to your house. <laughs> and if I don't go viral again, I will be very happy. <laughs> Understood. Thank you, Sophie. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Paul. Have a good one. All right, I'm super happy right now to be joined by someone who I have followed forever on Twitter, someone whose work I, I totally enjoy on you know, mostly through Twitter, also on the minor league baseball website and now major league baseball's website. Tyler Mon is in my mind, first and foremost, one of the hosts of the show before the show podcast by minor league baseball, also a play-by-play announcer for the university of Denver and some international baseball writes about minor league baseball for the minor league baseball website and for major league baseball. So just a, a whole host of sort of sportsy things largely associated with minor league baseball, especially Tyler has a great series on MILB.com about the history of various logos and brands in minor league baseball. So Tyler, after that long introduction, thank you for being here. Paul, it's so good to talk to you, man. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, I'm so psyched. I'm so psyched about this conversation. I'm gonna I'm gonna start just like with a really quick story that we were just laughing about before uh, before we started the actual interview here. I was driving cross country. I was moving cross country when I discovered the show before the show podcast, 
And I was so excited to find this, which this podcast has been uh, around now for eight years, which is hard to believe, right? Like Crazy. They, I, I didn't even know there were podcasts eight years ago. So, <laughs> um, so this podcast has been around for eight years. It delves into not just the, you know, not just the stats and the players and the prospects, but it really gets into the fun stuff in minor league baseball, the culture and the promotions and the, the brands, which is something that we're going to talk about for sure. So you host that with Sam Dykstra, and then uh, regular participants, regular contributors are Ben Hill, who everyone knows, and Josh Jackson, who yep. I'll be talking to later on in this episode. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, we're going to talk about Ghost of the Miners. It's uh, that's another one of my, my favorite things here. So I'm just, I'm curious to know from you for, well, oh, so the story I was going to tell was I'm moving across country, and I discovered this podcast, and I had about 10 hour days, and I, I remember just lining up the podcast and just thinking, well, I'm going to listen to as many of these as I can and getting like 10 hours in a day, basically of this podcast as I was driving. And so I felt like you and Sam and Ben and, and Josh later on, were all just like best friends by the time I was done this podcast. So we got to hang out in the car with you. We did. So this trip. is the first time you've ever spoken back to me. So, right. Uh... <laughs> We've come out of the podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that the podcast is a blast and I appreciate the work that you guys all do on it because it's really man. fun to follow. One of the things that you do, and I, this is where, where I really want to talk to you about this as it pertains to baseball by design here. You started covering the brands and the history and the logos and, and detailed write-ups. You did this one article that was this fantastic, just detailed write-up of the, the, the materials that the uniforms were made of. So how did you get into covering that aspect of minor league baseball? Yeah, you know, it's uh, a lot of it came kind of out of necessity of the pandemic year when we uh, had no actual minor league baseball to cover. And we're trying to come up with new ideas for, you know, content for the website and all that. And um, I had done some logo and uniform stuff before. That's generally been Ben Hill's beat, um, you know, as the the business and culture reporter for minor league baseball for so long. Ben's done such a great job for, um, you know, for forever for covering, you know, new identities and new logos goes and rebrands and redesigns and all that. Um, and I had gotten to do a little bit of that. And then when the pandemic hit, uh, yeah, I pitched uh, a series idea to our editors that so much of our coverage is about the newest names, the newest logos, the wackiest identities, the the craziest um, visual, you know, composites that come into minor league baseball. And I said, what if we went on the flip side of that and kind of talked about the oldest, longest standing logos and identities and how those have changed and evolved over the years and all that. So uh, I think the first one that I did, I want to say was Rochester, the Rochester Red Wings. Um, but I did, you know, a, a deep dive into kind of all of their logos going back throughout franchise history, where the name came from, uh, you know, if there's ever been discussion about changing it, uh, how the logos have evolved. Um, and I've gotten to do, you know, I would say half a dozen, maybe more of those. I know I've done uh, Rochester, Chattanooga, uh, Asheville, uh, you know, some of the most historic teams in minor league baseball. And that's been really, really cool to, to learn um, so much about what has made identities stick in certain communities, because, you know, it's, it's a big revenue generator to be a team that goes through a change, gets to sell merchandise and, and build around a new identity. I was just reading a story the other day about uh, the Appalachian league, which is now an MLB partner league um, that does, and you've got a Burlington sock puppet shirt on. Uh, <laughs> they, they now just do a collegiate summer ball. They're formerly a rookie level uh, league and, every team in that league used to have the name of its parent club. 
So there were the the Pulaski Yankees and, uh, you know, the the Blue Jays had an affiliate in that league. The Astros had affiliate in, in Greenville. Um, but when that league shifted to uh, a collegiate summer league, everybody needed a new identity. The, the merchandise, the logos, uh, everything that has exploded has generated, you know, more interest, more revenue, higher attendance for, I think, all but two or three teams in the league. Um, so, yeah, it's a long roundabout answer. But, yeah, I've always been interested in kind of the, the minutia. And, yeah, like you said, I did a, a story on uniform manufacturers. Um, you know, there were a handful of teams across the minors that did not have uh, the two standard uh, uniform producers, which are Rawlings and, and Wilson in the minors. There were, uh, you know, a couple of teams that used uh, one team that used Under Armour that was, um, you know, located in that area. The Aberdeen Ironbirds were located close to uh, Under Armour's headquarters. Lehigh Valley was the only team that used Majestic, which at the time was the, the major league uniform producer because they're located right near the Majestic plant. Hillsboro, uh, Nike uniforms, because they're located right near Beaverton and uh, the Nike global headquarters. And so, yeah, I've gotten to kind of dive into all of the the nerdy stuff that I've always been fascinated by. Well, that I mean, the uniform stuff is is really I mean, just those facts there about the the different uniform providers there. I mean, that's that's a whole other level. Right. But yeah, you, you piqued my interest with the with the Red Wings. One of my favorite facts about the Red Wings is that their their nickname preceded the Detroit Red Wings by two right. years. And so it's uh, they get to lay claim to that one. The Appalachian League, though, is such a great case study, right? Because I'm wearing Burlington's sock puppets right now. You know, the, the Danville Otterbots have been a huge story. I'm a Phillies fan. I'm not buying a Danville Braves t-shirt, right? But I've got some Otterbot stuff. As someone who covers this, can you speak to the, the sort of value of a minor league team having a unique brand as compared to one that's named for its parent club? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, the the trend of teams being named after parent clubs was something out of necessity for a long time in minor league baseball and just a very different era when, uh, you know, minor league team uniforms were passed down from the major league club. Mm -hmm. And it, it was easiest to if you're the AAA affiliate of, you know, the, the San Diego Padres uh, it's easy when you can just import a, a whole batch of uniforms, keep everything on the front, the same, maybe take some names off and, and reutilize them. Um, you know, you bring up uh, Atlanta having Danville there. There was a time when with the exception of one affiliate, which was the team that I worked for at the time, the Myrtle beach Pelicans, every single team in that organization was named after the parent club. So Gwinnett at the, well, first it was Richmond at the triple A level, then Gwinnett, then Mississippi. Uh, then you jump over Myrtle beach. The only team with a, a logo that was unique. Rome was named after the parent club. Danville was named after the parent club. And I think it's just boring. You know, I understand the necessity of it. Um, but especially in the modern era, I think it's tremendously boring. Uh, I was surprised when, the Mets bought Syracuse and changed that team name uh, to be the Syracuse Mets. They were formerly the, the Syracuse chiefs and they were yeah. the sky chiefs and they were back to the chiefs again. Um, it does surprise me when teams go that route because there is so much available to cultivate and build an identity around a unique uh, logo and, and brand. Um, and I just think it's something that, kind of harkens back to the soul of minor league baseball, which is that it is a local community oriented game. Uh, you know, there's a, a team that is no longer an affiliated minor league team, but it's in the state that you and I are both sitting in in Grand Junction, uh, the Grand Junction Rockies 
<laughs> we're still named the Rockies, despite the fact that they are now a, a collegiate summer league or an independent uh, summer league team in the Pioneer League. Um, that team was formerly my favorite identity in minor league baseball, which was the Casper Ghosts. Absolutely. And they moved and took on the name of the parent club. Uh, and there are so many good options for, you know, an identity for a team in Western Colorado. And uh, I, I have long wondered why you don't capitalize on that. And so you want to know, can I interject real quick? Yes, with the, please. the name that I think would be so, so good for the Grand Junction team. Yes. Cause then I'll give you one too. All right. Mine is the cutthroats, yeah. which is the, a kind of fish, right? It's a kind of trout, right? The yep. cutthroats. How, and then they would have a fish logo. Yes. It would be great. There used to be a Denver minor league hockey team that was named the cutthroats. And I think they only existed for two years, maybe, oh, but the logo was, the logo was great. And, uh. and yeah, it's a perfect name. Uh, mine, I think it would be amazing if they were the peaches because oh. that area of Western Colorado is very famous for Palisade peaches and all that. But you also get a baseball tie in with the amount of teams that have been named the peaches there. Sure. I know there was a Negro leagues team that was named the peaches, the Rockford peaches, obviously in the, in yeah. the all American girls professional baseball league. Um, so yeah, I've always kind of wondered why team it's such an easy way to generate interest and revenue uh, in your franchise and what it does. And the story about the Appy league that I was reading yesterday, it provides a local tie-in for people to be interested in. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the Danville Otterbots, and there's a whole explanation of where that comes from. The the otters that live in the river near the ballpark and the, the STEM dedication uh, for industry in that area. People can be proud of that. Yeah. Much more so than they can be proud of, you know, if you're the Johnson City Cardinals, yeah, it's cool that you're affiliated with the Cardinals, but what does that speak to your local community? Not a right. whole lot. Um, and so that's what fascinates me about the, the local brands. Well, you're touching on the whole reason for the existence of this podcast, right? Like this podcast exists because I believe yeah. you can tell the story of America by understanding why minor league teams are called what they're called, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so touching back, you originally, you, you talked about the Red Wings. I know you've covered like the Norfolk Tides and the, the Tulsa Drillers. Yeah. I'm curious from your perspective of someone, as someone who's written about this and covered it and sort of lives it daily. There were teams, there have always been, you know, the Buffalo Bisons, the Durham Bulls, you know, more recently, the Carolina Mudcats, the Toledo Mudhens. There's always been some sort of outliers out there that preceded the current era of the sort of wacky nickname era, right? Yeah. And I'm curious, in your mind, can you point to sort of a turning point, you know, maybe not one team necessarily, but. Uh, you know, like I, th I think some people will point to the Montgomery biscuits as the point that like the, the, there was the pre biscuits and post biscuits era of, of minor league baseball. Can you point to sort of a, a, a relative time when minor league baseball teams realized, wait a minute, there's, there's something in this for us as an individual team, rather than just as an affiliate of a, of a, of a parent club. Yeah, I think Montgomery is definitely uh, a very good example. I think there are kind of guideposts along the way. Um, you know, the, a team that has a perfect uh, classic name, but a logo that started to, I think, turn people's um, vision away from the, the traditional is the Chattanooga Lookouts. Oh, yeah. uh, and the Lookouts logo is pretty tame and basic. Uh, compared to what we see now, but uh, I think it was in the late 80s when the Lookouts introduced their logo, which is just a pair of eyes inside the letter C, and for whatever reason, that blew up and, and took off, and I think it was just so different 
from what teams had been doing across the landscape of minor league baseball. Um, that was one big step. Uh, the Mudcats were another one. And I want to say the Mudcats were early to mid nineties, the year 94 is sticking in my mind for some reason, but um, they were around that point. And that logo, I remember when I was a kid seeing that logo and just being fascinated by it. Um, Montgomery, certainly established the idea that you could do something wacky and it would not turn people off. Mm -hmm. But it's funny because, you know, when Montgomery came around, there was still, uh, there were still a lot of chapters of teams turning people off to come. And the one that I always go back to is the team that is now known as the New Hampshire Fisher cats. Oh yeah. The Fisher cats introduced an identity, the primaries because of their, their stance as the first presidential primary every year and came out with a, a glorious logo of a, a donkey and an elephant kind of warily eyeing each other uh, over their shoulders across this really cool script and people hated it. <laughs> nowadays we're in this, this very familiar formula where you introduce a new logo and identity People complain about it and talk about how stupid it is. You wait out the initial storm and then you cash in on it. And that's yep. what every franchise has done for the last decade plus of minor league baseball. <laughs> but the New Hampshire team had to go back to the drawing board and come up with an entirely new identity because of the blowback to the primaries name. Um, so, yeah, I think it kind of started with those early stages, whether it's Chattanooga or Carolina and especially Montgomery. Um, but there were still these, these bumps along the way um, where people would kind of put their toe in the water and then pull back. <laughs> and the funny thing is when you look back throughout the history of minor league baseball, insane names have always existed. You know, the, when the Omaha Royals rebranded as the golden spikes then went back to the Royals <laughs> and then they did the storm chasers identity. Yeah. One of the the finalists for Omaha's identity was the Omahogs. And I remember people thinking, oh, that's the stupidest thing on earth. Right. Well, that's the name of a late 19th century, early 20th century Omaha baseball team. They were known right. as the Omahogs. Right. Um, and, you know, you're going to talk with Josh coming up here in a little bit, who's one of my favorite human beings uh, in the history of planet Earth. Josh <laughs> does Ghosts of the Miners about all of these insane team names from the late 1800s through the mid 1900s. Um, so, yeah, it's certainly nothing new, which is so fascinating. Right. Well, and you mentioned, you know, first of all, Ghost of the Miners. I'm super excited to talk to Josh about this because it's just, I mean, that's so, uh, there really are some just wild names. Yeah. I love that both the the Durham Bulls and the the Danville, well, it's a different franchise, but that both Durham and Danville had teams called the Tobacconists, which right. I love. The you mentioned the, the, the primaries. That was another, that's a Dan Simon classic right there. Dan Simon, you know, at, at one point, Dan was, uh, the preeminent and sort of like the biggest name in, in minor league rebranding. Obviously, Brandios has come along since then, and now they're they're both doing quite a bit of work. I'm curious in your mind, you know, Brandios, obviously, they elicit, I think, strong reactions. I have Jason on this podcast all the time. I love talking to Jason about all this stuff. He talks about what you were talking about there, about the the sort of initial bad reaction and then turning it around. He calls it the J-curve. There's research, you know, about the J-curve where it's like a straight down, and then like a little plateau and then way up. And, you know, that's, he, he points to like the El Paso Chihuahuas as being right. like the quintessential J curve yes. example of a team that everyone hated and then is now widely beloved. Yeah. There are rebrands happening, major rebrands with high-end firms happening at collegiate summer level teams, independent leagues. Now these new, you know, some of the, the partner leagues that exist after the, Major League Baseball, Vogon Destructor Fleet moved through and reorganized minor league baseball. Do you see 
the trend. Now I'm asking you to look into the future here a little bit. As someone who covers this, do you see this trend of increasingly wacky, increasingly hyper-local continuing, or do you think it'll reach a crescendo and it will pull back and maybe it'll be a little more conservative going forward at some point? Yeah, I, I think there will be a pendulum swing where it goes back in the direction of something a little bit more, um, not boring necessarily, but maybe simplified. And mm-hmm. uh, I think the the risk that minor league baseball teams run is that eventually everything becomes so homogenized that if everybody has a wacky name and everybody right. has a wacky logo and they all look somewhat similar at what point does that lack um the excitement factor for fans to get fired up about it mm-hmm. um when do you jump the shark with it i right. think teams are starting to go in the direction of and i personally think that this is a, a very neat trend. Um, but I know a couple of teams that I've talked to in recent years have started to go the route of why don't we have local design firms do stuff that is tied to our local community. Mm-hmm, um, the mm-hmm. team that really stands out to me in that way is Nashville. The Nashville sounds, yeah. they went through a redesign uh, with a big national firm probably a decade or so ago. And it really just didn't hit. Yeah. Um, the, the colors were weird. The logos didn't really pop. Uh, and Nashville wasn't that thrilled with it. And so they went to a local firm in the Nashville area, did a redesign and it is gorgeous. And it's, you know, the sounds are one of those teams that I I did a story on, uh, with their history because that team name goes back to the seventies. Um, and that is one that's kind of difficult, I think, to build an identity around a team called the sounds. Um, and yet they've been able to do it. And, you know, the, the current stuff is, is sort of record label themed, um, that's kind of the the look and the identity and the motif that they're going for. Uh, another team that went that route this past offseason is the Midland Rockhounds, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a club that had had a similar um, logo and, and look for the entirety of their franchise history since yeah. the late 90s. And they went with the local either Midland or Abilene based um, design firm that came up with with new logos and yeah. uh, new color scheme and all that capitalizing on what fans want, which yeah. is um, the, the local tie, the local identity. And it's coming from somebody who is born and bred and raised and knows that community. Um, and that does something extra, something different. Um, yeah. And I think that's a, that's a big step not to take anything away from the national firms, because obviously they've done amazing work. And, you know, you talk about Dan Simon, I feel like everything Dan does, I fall in love with instantly. <laughs> um, but I, I think, teams are always going to be looking for that next step, the next edge in how they want to look and going the local route, I think is a really cool next step. The, the rebrand that torch creative did for the torch Midland creative. Rockhounds. Yes. Um, I really, really liked that one because it's, yeah. first of all, it's hard in my mind to have a minor league baseball dog logo that does not look like Poochie from the Simpsons. Right. And so right. they did a great job with that. Um, <laughs> I remember they also I remember their GM pointed out something to me about the old logo, which was something with uh I think it was with the ears, where like the old dog only had like one ear or something <laughs> weird. Like something that if you look at that logo enough times, if you work in the front office, you're like, oh, this logo doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Right. But yeah, right. I think that's I think that's a very accurate, uh accurate portrayal. I think they did a great job of making a logo that did not look like Poochie. The uh <laughs> Oh, the sounds too. I mean, that's another one that's really interesting to me because they, I mean, they, you, you were talking about the primaries, you know, having that initial backlash. I remember with the sounds that the, the initial version of their previous logo was orange. 
and right. that got pushed back and then they made it red and they're like okay well that's better but still not great and then they right. went with this this new one the other example that i really like of a local designer creating really great work for a team is brandon lamarche and the bowling green hot rods yes uh, you know he was an he was an intern for them right and then you know got to know eric leach and showed him his work and ended up doing all these great alternate identities and the new primary that they have and so so there's certainly, I think, this movement towards the hyper-local I really enjoy. Another one is um, Britton Peck, who did the logo for the uh, Carolina Disco Turkeys. Uh, yeah. You know, he's a local artist. From, he, didn't even, he didn't even have a background in sports design, you know. But so I, I like this trend towards the, the hyper-local. I mean, Me of too. course, I love the work that Brandios and, and Dan Simon do. I think they do amazing work. And there's a lot of, you know, Fooser Sports is another one out there. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of design firms caroline jetty is another uh you know she just did the 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 dirty birds uh the charleston dirty birds logo and so todd radom who is one oh, of my favorite of people course, on earth todd. Love todd todd was yeah. my guest on uh, episode two uh, that's awesome of this, of this podcast uh, well, yeah. and he's designed you know one of the longest lasting in in minor league baseball these days the brooklyn cyclones yeah. i mean a team that that uh you know derives some of its identity from the dodgers but um yeah that's a difficult era to have designed a logo in and not had it right. change i think they right. came in in 2000 um and, and again, it's tough to have had something by then that doesn't look dated right and i'm a phillies fan and they're a mets affiliate and I love that logo. I love that logo that Todd did. <laughs> and then his, you know, more recently, the, the wind surge one that he did is yes. a great one. So, well, I have a feeling, Tyler, that we could just talk about this like all day. Same uh, here. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I really do appreciate you coming on and talking about it, though, because there's just so much fun stuff in Miley Baseball. The work that you're doing covering the branding and the, and the history behind these teams is such a blast for me. I know that you have a lot going on out there, but where, where are the main places where people could find you and follow your work? Yeah. Um, so it's primarily these days prospect coverage is at MLB pipeline. And then all of our other stuff is, uh, is still over at the minor league site at MILB.com. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, I'm on, I'm on Twitter, usually ranting about, um, uniform and logo related things, the, the Rocky city connects or, uh, you know, the avalanche having blue, uh, breezers and helmets. Now it's, that's what I do on Twitter. Well, and I didn't even bring it up. You're mentioning, you know, some of the other stuff that you talk about, the Colorado state flag. Yes. Just being on everything. This is one of your pet peeves that I, I love because why does the Colorado <laughs> state flag have to be on everything? <laughs> and I think the misconception from people is that I don't like the Colorado state flag. I no. love the Colorado Beautiful state flag. flag. I think it's the best flag in the union. <laughs> I just think if you were going to utilize it, try to put some imagination behind how you utilize it. And the, the Rockies are a horrible culprit. The Rockies came out with a spring training logo a couple of years ago, which is the mountain that just yeah. has the flag slapped into the background and it doesn't work. Paul, doesn't I work. hate it. So yeah, I've got a, a Twitter mega thread of just me complaining about when people poorly use the, the Colorado state. I'm a huge fan of that mega thread. And every time I even tagged you in something, the other, Oh, it was when the, when the city connects uniforms yes. came out and I said, they could have just done the, they could have just the done the flag. flag. <laughs> they did put the flag on the side of the dugout jackets. I noticed that, but you know, it's just the flag and that's okay. I'm okay yeah. with that. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's. And then uh, you pointed out in that same thread, I think you pointed out that they could have used the, the welcome to colorful Colorado sign. That would have been such a great city connect I uniform. Very much wish they would have done that, which that's on like the, the jock tag. It's just above the tag on the, the lower part of the Jersey, but like no one's ever going to see that. Cause that's yeah. tucked in when a team's on the field, they put the, the ski lift ticket looking thing on the sleeve, <laughs> which I think is such a reach because everything else on that patch is about 
Coors Field or about the Rockies. So it's got like a 5280, which is the elevation of Denver. And it's got the uh, the longitude and latitude of Coors Field, which like, okay. And right. then it says rocks. But then it has two black diamonds, um, which, you know, for a, for a ski run. Okay, sure. Uh, yeah. My friend Jason Schwartz, who's the radio voice of the Lake Elsinore Storm. Jason and I text about logo and uniform stuff all the time. And he said it would have made sense if they made those baseball diamonds, which right. I think would have been fantastic. Right. Uh, but I, like nothing else about that uniform is skiing related. Why do you have a ski <laughs> ticket looking patch thing? And the uniform is supposed to be evocative of the old Colorado license plates. Why would you not put the welcome to colorful Colorado sign, which you pass on the highway on the way into the state? Why would that not be the sleeve patch? So I, I love this so much. That. I really just want to have this conversation over like a couple of beers at a baseball game. You I and think me both, could... man. <laughs> well, <laughs> we can make that happen. Uh, I think we should. I think we should absolutely, absolutely make that Same happen. Here. I love that idea. So, well, now I'm going to go talk to Josh, who once wrote a story about my ice cream helmet Sunday collection. Yes, on I remember that. So I remember it, that. This is that is fantastic. This is just like such a fun episode for me. So, Tyler, thank you That's so much. Awesome, I appreciate your time, and I am sure we will talk again. Absolutely, Paul. Thank you. And thank you for all the stories that you've done. I've, I've read the sportslogos.net stuff on the, the story behind brands forever. And, uh, you know, obviously we, we took some inspiration for that for our old timey brand stories. And uh, but your work is always fantastic. And it's great to finally talk to you, man. You are very kind to say that. I appreciate that. And I look forward to hanging out again. You and me both. All right. Thanks, Tyler. All right, everyone. Welcome back. Josh Jackson is a writer and editor for uh, minor league baseball milb.com and also the mlb pipeline and is a regular on minor league baseball's the show before the show podcast and does a segment which is the reason we're talking today he does a segment called ghosts of the miners so first of all josh thank you for for coming on the podcast oh my pleasure i'm i'm excited to to talk to you and to be, to be here Holy smokes, ghosts of the minors. Like I spend the whole the whole of the minor league baseball podcast. You know, listen, Tyler Mon, Sam Dykstra, Ben Hill, they're great. They're fine. Like they do, you know, they they do a good Man. job of it. They're pretty good. They're no, pretty good. Yeah, they're fantastic. <laughs> but this ghost of the minors segment that you do on the on the show before the show podcast is so much fun. And so rather than trying to describe it for you, since it's your segment, I'm gonna let you describe what you do on Ghost of the Miners. Well. I ask listeners to uh, find the real historical mi minor league baseball team hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. Um, so it's got a, like a quiz show sort of, sort of format. I ask you to identify one real minor league baseball team from history, and it's got like an A, B, or C format. And so two of them are, are made up, um, fakes. So it's like the uh, like the icebreaker that everyone hates so much. It's like the reverse of two truths and a lie. It's two lies and a truth. It's two right. fake baseball teams and you know and a real one. And so and and so part of this project for you, which I imagine is a lot of fun, but also something of a challenge, is to come up with fake old timey baseball names and backstories for these teams that you know that are not real. But then also digging up these these real team names as you've been doing these. My interest obviously is in the is in the real nicknames that you know that you find out there that you uncover somehow from like the late 1800s, early 1900s. Are there any that like particularly stand out to you? Any that you're thinking like you know even though you have evidence that they're real that you can't really believe that they're actually real? One of the ones that's sort of like the most like that for me is the Union Springs Springs. <laughs> 
it's a little bit like the philadelphia phillies actually now that i think right about it. that's a good point that's a good point. but i also it's like can you believe the philadelphia phillies um exist and and like like if you ever stop and think about it wait they're just called the philadelphia phillies every night that i watch their bullpen i wish that they did <laughs> i wish this team didn't exist um they were from the late thirties or mid to late thirties uh, in the Alabama, Florida league. And like, um, you know, you could have come up with like the union Springs bathers or which, you know, bathers was even fairly, uh, not, <laughs> right. not a rare, not a super rare yeah. team name in my right. history. There are a million things you could do with union Springs and yeah. um, the Mississippi river rivers that, you know, <laughs> this is great. I'm seeing a pattern here. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, it's like we've tried right. nothing and we're out of ideas. Right. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> and then that's the other thing is that a lot of teams, not so much in the thirties, but going back to the 19th century, uh, or, or early 20th century, some teams didn't really have names. Right. Um, they were mostly named by the press. And then, yeah, I get into some stuff sometimes where, you know, I'm running with, okay, we're going with this team name is, is our thing this week. And then, you know, the more I dig into it and the more I find out, it's like, okay, so that's their name on like maybe baseball reference or something for like three seasons or something. But the more I look at things from the time, it's like maybe somebody called them that once in, right. in print anyway. I mean, maybe conversationally, but right. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so in terms of like what the official names of teams of uh, are from leagues that went defunct in, you know, 1917, uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's kind of like one is as good as another. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Call them anything. Um, so you're yeah. on, on the podcast when you, you know, it, when you're listening to that podcast and it's yours is usually towards the end. So you've listened to, you know, 45 minutes of a minor league baseball podcast and, and towards the end of the podcast, your, your segment comes in. So clearly it's big minor league baseball fans and not just fans of prospects and stats and, and, you know, who's coming up through the system, but the culture of minor league baseball, because that's something they talk a lot about on the podcast, the promotional evenings and, you know, the team names and all that stuff. So your task in ghost of the minors is to come up with team names that, really significant fans of minor league baseball have never heard of so what's your process in, in digging up these old team names not just digging up the old team names but the but the sort of backstory behind them yes um it is it, i'll tell you it is getting harder as i've done more and more and i don't it's not like i mind if people are like i know the right answer that's great right, um, right. <laughs> but if it's something where there's just no fun in the guessing part of it for the majority of the listeners, you know, right. or, or even like 70%, you know, but even like, <laughs> even if like it's a team name that 40% of the people are going to go like, Oh, I know, I know that team. Right. Um, you know, I, I try to shy away from, uh, so right. the process, I tend to spend a lot of time looking, um, through old league records, usually, usually starting on baseball reference. And again, the longer, the more of these I do, the more it's like, oh yeah, I've already done that. Or I, or I even like, maybe I mentioned this team as an opponent. I think I had one of those in a recent segment where it's like, I'm doing one that I mentioned as an opponent of another team back in like episode 11. Right. It's like, if, people, <laughs> if somebody's like, well, I know because <laughs> I heard it on episode 11, then kudos to you. And I, I was going to say, they, you, right, right. they deserve <laughs> to get it right if that happens. Absolutely. I appreciate them so much. Right? <laughs> right. And I'm sorry if that lets you down that, that you know. Um, <laughs> so maybe even more fun 
what's your process in coming up with the fake names? Because the fake names that you come up with are very believable. Thank you. That's um, sometimes I sometimes I have some grave doubts about that part. You know, where it's like <laughs> everybody everybody's gonna know. Everybody's gonna know right away. Um, that's it. Can be tricky. Um, I almost always. I think every single time. Although I have a list of like fake team names that I that I keep that I've just like, you know, I'll be walking down the street and, and be like, oh, the the Tallahassee lemon drops. Um, and that's, that's a fake one. Know, as far as I know, that's also part of the process with the fake team names. Is then I have to make sure right. that that they are fake teams. <laughs> I have to like Google the phrase and Google the phrase plus baseball and like. Right. Um, I don't think I've ever accidentally <laughs> named a, named a real one. I don't think I have. Well, so obviously the trends in naming minor league baseball teams has have, have changed a lot over the years. You mentioned you know, a lot of teams were named, either didn't have names or were named by the press. I can tell you, I went to the University of Richmond and uh, we were the, or continue to be the Richmond Spiders. And the Spiders got their name in the late 1800s from a journalist who saw a lanky pitcher for the Richmond baseball team and thought he looked like a spider, which I'm assuming is where the Cleveland Spiders got their name as well. So that was one where the the Richmond Spiders to this day are named the Spiders because of that that phenomenon of of journalists naming teams. I I think that's the case with even like the USC Trojans. I went to graduate school at USC, and there's a plaque somewhere with you know a quote from a newspaper article about the USC football team fighting like Trojans or something. Right, right. Uh, so there's there's a couple of current contemporary minor league baseball teams whose names date back to the to the 1800s. Certainly the tourists are one. I'm pretty sure they were named by journalists. The Bisons, the Buffalo Bisons, that name goes back to the late 1800s. The Durham Bulls are certainly the early 1900s. So, you know, some of these names go way, way back and have survived. Are there ones that you've talked about that you think, well, that could be a good name to revive right now? Like that, that one could be, you know, I'd like to see that one survive. You know, when you have a conversation with somebody like again and then again, and again, and they don't remember the conversation. And you want to be like, why can you not remember that we've talked about this? Um, yes. I'm sure that I'm on like the other end of a thousand of these with Tyler, but one of them is he multiple times, once on Twitter and then once on like voice notes that we've exchanged on our phone has like mentioned, oh, the, the Minot Magicians. I learned about the Minot Magicians high school <laughs> basketball team this year. Um, from Twitter and da da da, and I was like, "You produced an episode of Ghosts of the Miners about the Minot Magicians baseball team, and even in the episode, it says like now the high school team uses that name, so the Minot Magicians. Um, and you know, oh, they, you know, they're called that because of the Magic City, because they the town sprung up overnight because the railroad was built there. And it's like, oh yeah, I I never knew that, Tyler. You learned it. You learned it. I think you learned it from Twitter." Like three He's, weeks before you saw that tweet, you learned it from from producing an episode, reading a script, and then you know, producing an episode that he was apologetic. That's really um, funny. So you write about you know you you cover contemporary minor league baseball now for MILB.com, and you write for MLB Pipeline. How has how has researching these you know hundred to hundred plus year old teams? informed the work that you do on contemporary like what kind of perspective has that given you on the on the game today yeah so um 
the the first thing that I notice is like how I, I mean probably everybody who does anything about history feels this way at some point, but how so much things have not changed, how right. similar so much stuff is, and then obviously there are things that that definitely have changed. Before I was ever doing the Ghosts of the Miners segment, um, which you know actually came about, I think Ben we had spat back and forth some podcast ideas like before and stuff. And then this uh, last baseball season, he said, you know, we got to get you in there with something history based. We could do a fun quiz thing. And I was like, that's great. Let's, let's go. Um, But, and that was because he knew that I'd written about minor league baseball history for a long time. Um, And so that the perspective that that gives is um, you see how much has changed and you see, how little has changed in some ways. A lot of what has changed is like fights break out today and there, and then some rough stuff can happen in games today. But the game used to be just incredibly rough. It used to be, and I don't think, I mean, it's it's sort of fun with the, you know, an eye of a hundred years back or 60 or 70 years back to look and go and 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 have a little laugh and stuff. But it's like I think it's actually a very very good thing that the game is so much safer than than it was and it's so much less violent than it sure. was um sure. brawls used to just be like you know out of first of all so common yeah and secondly just they would get out of the out of control so yeah. fast um yeah. obviously substance abuse is is not a non-issue in today's world sure um it's a significant issue yeah but how common it was for you know a roster to spend <laughs> from from the moment the game ended at 3 p.m. until you know the wee small hours out drinking together like, sure, sure, and sure. then get up at noon for the for the next day's game absolutely um, yeah it's amusing to look back and, and say oh these rough and tumble times I love it I love it it's great fun stuff but it's also like oh it's good that the, that the that in some ways the world is a safer place <laughs> than it used to be in this you know romanticized um, right vision that we look back on for sure, um, for sure. But also like business stuff, it gives me yeah. a perspective on on the business of minor league baseball, and that I mean I think it's uh, a terrible thing for a fan to lose a franchise. That's yeah. that's an awful thing, mm-hmm. um, but. It's also basically a constant for as long as there's been baseball. I, I really don't mean to belittle like any heartache that people have over losing a, a team because it's awful. And, and oftentimes, yeah, it can be because of a greedy decision. Um, but it can also just be that like, it's just not working in the books for, for, the, for the team, you know, sure. um, whoever they're connected to or whatever. Um, yeah. And it used to happen way more often than it happens now. Well, you uh, see this in in Ghost of the Miners because you'll you'll say like, oh, this team played from 1902 to 1903, and, <laughs> and then, then right. they were gone, right? Like in July of 1903, the league, the, you know, the right, league folded. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like the three, the, the three Florida Montana folded, league, and so they had no one to play. So, you know, <laughs> one of the one of the teams that we've seen sort of reprised as a as a as a one off is the Durham Tobacconists, which That's I right. absolutely love. And that's and I know that the uh, the team there was a Danville tobacconists as well, and so certainly there are team names that existed back then that would not now. Is that something that that you've encountered in in various forms? Yeah, so I love um, I love those two, and I love actually like the, the kind of edginess in it, and I think it also is a sign of progress because 
you don't take your 10 year old to a tobacconist game and worry like, Oh, he's going to get an idea that smoking cigarettes is cool. From going, you know, cause it's <laughs> right. like, I guess maybe vaping is like is back and whatever, but like, I don't think on today's <laughs> schoolyards, you know, it's like a thing that the kids are like, smoking is a cool thing. I'm going to, you know, I don't yeah. think it's the same as it used to be. Um, I kind of want to see like the Portland vapors though. Right. Like that's uh... <laughs> <laughs> right. right, right. <laughs> Uh, and then there are, you know, there have also been times where to be 100% frank, I don't get to spend nearly as much time as I would like on uh, working on Ghost of the Miners. Uh, a sort of unfortunate effect of that is that sometimes we'll see a team name and I'll go, oh, that's great. And then it doesn't turn out to mean what I assumed it had. Sure. Um, but we did an episode about the commies of yeah. somewhere in, you know, the American Southeast. The, oh, the, yeah, Columbia commies um, of the old, of the 1911. They won the South Atlantic League title in 1911. Um, and seeing commies, it was like, okay, that's something that I know I can come up with a lot of jokes about yeah. um, and have some fun with. And uh, there's bound to be some good history there. And then, you know, the, I start digging into it and it's like, well, the commies actually refers to um, the, the commissioner-based form of municipal governments, which was, in short, a way to make sure that, uh, that segregation was, was enforced, that Jim Crow could remain in place. Mm. And so then it's like, okay, so I'm doing this lighthearted um, fun minor league baseball podcast and i'm sort of making the centerpiece a team whose name is about like this the systemic oppression right. of, of, of black people and it's right. like well now i'm in trouble and yeah. you know we toyed actually with i was like ben was like uh we can come up with a way to like back out of it or something and i was like well let me take a crack at it and let me yeah. see if there's a way we can do this that doesn't hide what they you know that says what they were Sure. Um, and is as informative, maybe more informative. Yeah. As as you know, any other episode, and also does talk about the baseball. Um, right. That that uh, at the time, which is what it's all about, is like presenting a look at, you know, old baseball worlds. Right. And a lot of times, the old baseball world was horrifically racist. Yes. There there have been a, there have been other times where, you know, we've addressed that on more on purpose, where we didn't stumble, where I wasn't like. Right. Okay. Right. You know, I, there was a team that we did that was like, well, this team folded because they refused to integrate. <laughs> right. <laughs> and right. It's, and it's, yeah. you know, I, and I, that I kind of was like, well, I want to do that team, you know, yeah, I want expose to talk it. right. 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 And it's yeah. because, because it's also, there's a, there's a good amount of nostalgia for, for old baseball teams sure. this, and, and old baseball. And that's sure. part of what this is about too. But I, I do think it's important to say like, you know, not only, is it good that um, teams aren't out till four in the morning getting hammered every night and then showing up at the ballpark and breaking bottles over each other's heads? Right. Um, but it's also, you know, they, this was a, a world in which um, racism was sort of codified into league rules and not sort of yeah. <laughs> was, period. Yeah. Um, I like to at least not pretend that 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 wasn't the case. Sure. No, to acknowledge its, its existence, I, to avoid it entirely would be disingenuous. And, and to acknowledge it when it comes up, 
I feel like I remember hearing the commies. Uh, I feel like I remember hearing that episode. So was it the case that you had it, that you put it out there as one of these is is real? And then you dug into that after that. So it was already sort of out there and then you had to address it in the following episode. Exactly. It was, it was, uh, you know, I picked the commies as a team and then made up two other teams. And I think it was even the, the fake teams were the Victoria Roundheads and the Muhlenberg Mossbacks, which both uh, refer to old obscure slang nicknames for political beliefs and systems. So, all right. So Josh, I'm going to, I'm going to switch gears here a little bit. And I have to say that, you know, I can, I can name the sort of, you know, the, the happiest days of my life, you know, on, on one hand, right. The, the, the birth of my children, right. Even, you know, it's a little gross, but still very happy, you know, turning point in my life, the day the Phillies won the world series, you know, that's, that's pretty great. So I don't know. It's the uh, birth of my children and the day the Phillies won the world series in 2008. And then also the day that I was featured along with my helmet Sunday collection, on the front page of the minor league baseball website with an article that you wrote. So you and I have spoken before and it was for uh, you, you interviewed me about the, the, the minor league baseball helmet Sunday collection that I have out behind me. And for several hours on minor league baseball's website, the headline super fan Caputo screams for ice cream helmets. And I have you to thank for that. You called and we talked for like an hour about helmet Sundays <laughs> somehow, and you turned it into an article. Yeah, that I mean, for me, that's a blast too. That I, I said earlier something about how happy I am to work on uh, on minor league history stories, but I also really just love to connect with you know different people who have a connection to the game in, in some way or another and have you know some kind of passion or interest. Um, and yeah, you're definitely you know in the in uh, near the top of that list. Um, not that there's like. <laughs> I don't have a list. Uh, it's not an ordered list. <laughs> I want to see it. But, I want to see the list. I want to see who's ahead of me. I'd, I'd put you up there for sure. <laughs> um, and I think I told, I did tell you when we were emailing about setting this up that, you know, in that, in the, I think it's in the article, it was definitely in our conversation. You had talked about Judge John Hodgman. Oh yeah. Um, and, you know, at the time I, did, I wasn't really a Judge John Hodgman reader. And now, uh, you know, every Sunday I, get the New York Times Sunday magazine and, <laughs> and, I'm, and I first I read the ethicist it's like the dessert from you know the column that it's in the middle of and I, but every time I'm like I know a guy even though I mean I don't really know you know you but now we know I, each other right right this is, this is now we've got the visual zoom going on here, so. the, the backstory on that because I don't I haven't talked about this much on the podcast when I first started the helmet Sunday collection I, I wrote into Judge John Hodgman because I was accused of taking up too much space in the kitchen shelf with my helmets. And he basically said in his little, he's got a little New York Times column net. And if you don't know who Judge John Hodgman is, he's John Hodgman is the guy who was the PC in the I'm a Mac, I'm a PC commercials. So he describes himself as a, a C-list celebrity, but you know, I think he's probably higher than that. And so he writes this little, he has a podcast where he fields complaints. And I actually was on the podcast as well, not about the Helmet Sundays. That was where my friend Jeremy took me to court for wearing Phillies gear to a Dodgers Reds game. And he felt that I should not have been allowed to do that. And so John Hodgman <laughs> ruled on that case as well. But with the Helmet Sundays, I was accused of taking up too much space in the kitchen shelves. And he ruled on it in his little, he does a little short column net in the New York Times Magazine. And in his column net, he basically ruled, and it's, it's an expression that I use all the time. It's a, a phrase that I use all the time. 
He said the difference between a hoarder and a collector is a display case. And it's for that reason that I have a shelf in my basement for all of the helmet Sundays to differentiate myself between a hoarder and a collector. And so, yeah. And so when you and I talked, it was, yeah, I brought up that John Hodgman had actually written about my, <laughs> written about my helmet Sunday collection. Yeah. At the time you had a, a white whale of uh, Sunday helmets. Yeah. It, I believe it was the Las Vegas 51s. Have I you, still, still up? Oh I, no. I still have not gotten the Las Vegas 51s. I do have the full size helmet that has the 51s logo on it. And I'm holding it up now. But no, what you know, what really matters to me, the ones that I really genuinely collect are the ice cream size. And uh, I don't know if a 51s helmet ever existed. The the aviators have a bunch. I have like three different aviators ones. So you know, maybe someday they'll do a throwback 51s Sunday helmet, but uh, that that white whale is still out there. So to sort of tie this into what we've been talking about, right? Like the helmet Sunday collection, I'm not the only Sunday helmet collector out there. And there are people out there who have more helmet Sundays than I do by far, right? Like, so it, it speaks to, I think, this sort of culture, the big business culture of minor league baseball, especially when it comes to brands and you know team stores and merch and all the different kinds of hats and and the souvenirs and and you know these brand these beautiful stadiums that were not part of minor league baseball not only not a hundred years ago but maybe even 20 20, years ago yeah Yeah. right (laughs) like i mean you know you look at a team i'm wearing a carolina mudcats helmet right now right like and when you think about when they rebranded which was not that long ago in the grand scheme of things that was like, whoa, the Mudcats. Like, what is this wackiness out there? Right. So so certainly the culture of minor league baseball fandom is bigger now than it ever has been. And I can say this, well, I don't know. Oh, sorry, you go ahead. Yeah, I want to jump in there because I, it's it, what you're saying is absolutely true, but with a caveat, which is in 1955, there's nobody alive who's going, I just love minor league baseball and minor <laughs> league fun. It meant it it didn't it meant the farm system. But so here's the caveat. Oh good. There were plenty of people who were like I just love my fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. Um whatever your team was. And mm-hmm. you know for a long time in American history if I mean and this is I'm saying American because this is quintessentially minor league baseball isn't is a historical American thing. Sure. Um sure look at the map of the united states there are no major league baseball teams west of st louis for a long time a long time and so the you know fans in from cities from you know salt lake to los angeles to um yeah i mean los angeles and san francisco obviously obviously big league cities today right yeah um the 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 sort of the big market teams on the west coast they had minor league teams and they had real minor league fans who just, who, who did love those games and love those teams and thought of, um, you know, the LA angels, for example, or the San Francisco seals, not in a way too dissimilar than, you know, fans in the East coast were thinking about their teams. Um, yes, there, but there was no, yeah, there certainly was no culture of, um, okay. I live in, um, you know, Portland, Maine, I'm going to go on the website of the San Francisco Seals and, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and order the, the fun Seals logo hat. Oh, yeah. um, no, that, I mean, that, that just didn't exist until 
very recently in the, in the grand scheme. Sure. That San Francisco Seals logo, though, is great, right? Like in, in it retrospect. Is. It is. Well, that's, a, that's a franchise, yeah, that I'm, that I'm enamored with. Yeah. Well, so let's let's talk about that, too, because this ghost of the miners thing touches on a, a real affinity right now for retro things in baseball. Right. Like so. And and I know that ghost of the miners touches on this real sort of affinity we have for old school baseball things. Right. And every time I hear one of these ones that you do, I'm like, God, I'd love to have a helmet Sunday with that logo on it. Right. Whether it's a fake one or a real one. Is that part of sort of how you ended up doing this? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm definitely interested in in minor league baseball history uh, at large, and sure. I also really community is always the thing that that when it comes down to is what I really love about minor league baseball. Small town baseball, minor league baseball, has its own sort of special brand of that has, uh, and that's lowercase brand, not not the way the right. brand is most commonly used today. <laughs> Finding ways that different communities existed around minor league baseball teams or different minor league baseball teams tried to find and couldn't really catch on, couldn't really find a team, you know, or sometimes did for, you know, and the idea of a team, the, the, basically the name is all I'm really working with. Um, That springs up, you know, for five years in the, in the 1910s, and then they bring it back in the 1930s and then they give it a try for two more seasons in the fifties. It's like, Though, you know, there was something, <laughs> even if it never really took hold and stayed for right. a great long time, there's something there, right? And I, yeah. and I like to sort of like see how that played out for that team, what that was, what, you know, what went on there. In terms of like logos, I, I yeah, I haven't really thought, um, I haven't spent a great deal of time thinking about them because, yeah, lots of times there are there's no evidence that there were any or right. you know there's like a, a terrible photograph from 1901 <laughs> uh <laughs> in like an even worse scan right, right i did do i did the somebody zebras at one point who were oh, named yeah. because they had stripes uh-huh okay so we know that about their look my favorite thing about learning about these minor league team names i very often will run into people who you know will tell me where they're from and i have a connection to their place, even if I've never been there because of the minor league baseball team name, you must have that times a hundred with all of the, you know, the historic baseball team names that you're, you're collecting. One of my, I, I really liked that we did the, the Schenectady electricians. Um, yeah. Schenectady, New York was, was the um, headquarters of general electric. But okay. so like, um, yeah, all kinds of things where it's like, oh, you're this because of this industry. That's a big yeah. one. I really like the theme of, okay, so there's a bunch of lumberjacks in this area. <laughs> right, We're right, naming right. our team the lumberjacks. Right, and I also go. really like, you know, that like maybe you wouldn't have gone with with iron pigs, you know, <laughs> right, um, right. A while ago, but you might well have gone, you know, with something you would have gone with maybe the pig iron, you know, ham, the pig, pig iron pounders or something right. like that. Right, right, right. Um, they were yeah. less worried about search engine optimization back then. So it's, 
It wasn't as much of a factor. Right, right, right. Yeah, they probably would have gone with prairie dogs instead of sod poodles for that reason. Right, so. right. <laughs> Josh, I have a feeling that we could just talk about this forever. And this has been a ton of fun. But uh, at a certain point, I should probably let you go and let our listeners listen to some other podcast because there's a lot of great ones out there, including the show before the show produced by minor league baseball with Sam Dykstra and Tyler Mon and Ben Hill and Josh Jackson. But Josh, where can people find you on, uh, on the socials? Um, you find me on the Twitter at, at Josh Jackson, M I L B. Well, Josh, thank you so much. I'm definitely going to have you on again because this was a lot of fun and we can, we can keep talking about ghosts of the minors, but in the meantime, I'll be listening to the show before the show podcast and I'll be following you and all your articles on uh, the minor league baseball website and the MLB Pipeline. Thanks so much for coming on, and it was great to talk to you again. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Anytime.